0: So, the Grammy nominations are in. <laughs> to quote Noxema Jackson,
1: whoopee!
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at this point, I'm, I just don't. I don't have much of a stake in anything that they're that they're gonna do. It's interesting seeing the people that still are super invested in it and really want their favorite artists to get their nominations and. You know, I just, at this point, I'm so aware of all of the politics involved in how things land, and a lot of times those politics happen in such a way that they even screw over the artists they wouldn't want to screw over, like when The Weeknd didn't get any nominations and he was, like, the biggest artist of the year, and then now he's, like, boycotting and he's never gonna submit or, I think, perform at the Grammys ever again. You know, things like that just happen because of how just completely fucked up the whole process so i have nothing for it you know it's 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 cool to see the people you like get nominations when it happens but you know
1: i mean my own you know the only thing i have a quasi investment in really is more out of just because it's what i it's what i write about so much the gospel nominations and i was particularly disappointed by the roots gospel category because
0: It was all white folks, and and it is usually. It usually is. I feel like the last couple years have been anomalies. anomalies Yeah, got Gloria Gaynor winning, and that was pretty. And that was she was the first black winner. I think since they've you know compiled all these awards and you know they just got rid of everything. They got rid of special award categories for traditional gospel for gospel choirs. That's right for bluegrass gospel, and so they just, again, just kind of, you know, smushed all these artists together, and yeah, anything that's rooted in some semblance of the original sound of gospel might fall under that category, and yeah.
1: Well, I'm really clear, like, the other gospel categories, both the CCM and the gospel categories are ageist. And so if you are over a certain age, you just aren't going to find yourself in that category. Yeah. And this praise and worship crap has just really taken over the entire genre. Yeah. Of both contemporary Christian and gospel. I mean, it's it's really, which is what we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was the other thing that really just kind of sickened me about the nominations was, I just felt like, so if you're an artist over a particular age, doing a particular sound, where, I mean, that Mary Clayton did not get a nomination in the roots gospel category and and granted her record was kind of pushing all of those boundaries because there was some contemporary things on it but ultimately where else is mary clayton going to be put Mm -hmm. unless they put her in like the mainstream category somewhere but which they weren't going to do right i mean roots gospel was really the only place for that record to go and i've really got to say motown gospel just completely sucks in that way so Burning myself out of any kind of connection there in terms of (laughs) accessibility to artists, but it's just an awful label. Yeah,
0: what most people don't realize is for something to get nominated, the label or the artist, if they're independent, they have to submit their work for nominations. And then there is the whole like campaign for your consideration and try to get, you know, the academy. Uh, members to nominate them and so yeah i think a lot of the times we're upset that something didn't get nominated when it wasn't even submitted in the first place and yeah that that may be the case with that album
1: i mean that's my guess because i saw nothing on her social media about for your consideration and you know i just thought what a loss because If anybody deserves to be in that category for really what was a a great album, especially after a aside from a gospel record in the 90s. I mean, a 30 year absence from
0: her. So, yeah, I was done. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing with the Grammys, I kind of see the Grammys and the Oscars kind of playing the same kind of weird game of. Well, we have to honor the biggest albums that came out in these respective genres. And they're, they're wanting to, um, you know, make sure that the big names are in the audience or if they accept the award that it, you know, makes for, I guess, some kind of ratings... You know, boost. Even though I think year over year the Grammys consistently just are so not watched on television because nobody cares anymore. Um, but then there's this other thing of they want to have this prestige thing, and I think a lot of the the members of the Academy nominate or uh, vote for the kinds of albums that they think other people think are prestigious. It's like a weird thing. It's like not even if I don't necessarily love it some piece of me thinks that this is some is some kind of critically acclaimed work or some kind of uh highbrow album or song and therefore that's what should be nominated even if i don't necessarily think so i think other people in my social group think that well, and it so it's, really it happens. ends up be, it ends up being this odd like collection of like two or three albums that were super popular and then, like, two or three albums that are like, what the, f-? like, what even is this? Why why was this nominated? Nobody talked about this album all year, <laughs> you know? And it's not even that great, but it has that, like, oh, it's jazzy or, oh, it's, you know, whatever. And so it has this kind of, again, this, like, highbrow prestigious thing, this that, that, that elitist music thing. Well, I will say, I mean, there were times when that was
1: fun. I mean, back in the late '80s, when Bonnie Raitt won for Nick of Time, and nobody thought that was going to happen, because that yes. was, not, you know, she was, you know, under the radar yeah. at that point, and had—I I don't want to get the story wrong, but anyway, she had like been through the end of one record deal. Nick of Time was kind of like a "this is your shot" moment and really it wasn't until the nomination process that that album even moved into anybody's radar and yeah. so i love that there are times when that has worked when great albums then get
0: visibility mm-hmm.
1: but that doesn't happen anymore <laughs>
0: no it's weird like some, like the herbie hancock thing like remember yes. when he did the Joni mitchell, mitchell yes. yeah and it was good but it was like really that's Okay, And I think that's what that was. It was, you know, here's this guy who has never had that kind of thing happen for him before. He's got this prestigious thing. And now he's done this work that's like bringing all this together. And I think everybody voted for it in that way because they felt like it should be the thing that would win. Even though there were other albums that were nominated that were bigger and probably more impactful just on music as a whole. As we look back on works that came out that year and how they've influenced. But I think that's the other thing with the Grammys. I don't it's so short-sighted and it's never really looking at is this the kind of project that we'll be talking about 10, 20, 30 years from now? And it's why works that make the the greatest songs of all time, the greatest whatever, are things that have consistently been overlooked by awards. Well, and I'll just say this and then we can, you know, we can move on to the subject. But I also
1: like that's also a huge pause for me with the with the Grammys because I personally have seen a lot of people that I know now become voting members. Yeah. And I go, I don't trust your judgment. <laughs> and so <laughs> At all, I don't trust your judgment. Like you're voting for your friends. That's right. what you're doing. Right. And so, yeah, I just feel like the quality control yeah. is not what it used to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Because I know, like, if I were a, if like if I were going to take that seriously. If I were to like join and, you know, do that whole thing, knowing me and knowing how I am with just anything, I would be the person that would listen to each and everything. That's right. And like go out of my way to be really impartial and go like, what do I believe is truly the best work? And these people don't do that. No. None of these people they don't even listen to half the things. No. And they just mark whatever Names. it's name recognition. Name it's so it's why the same people win over and over yep. again, especially in the smaller categories. Over and over again, even if what they put out is garbage, or you know, it's just not even up to their best quality. And it, yeah, it really does become a, a name game. Yeah.
1: That's my Diva story, and i <laughs> sticking to it. <laughs> I through
0: and through. I through and through. Oh, Lord, if you only knew. But Tell me what do I do? And if what I say is true, how could I get through to you? I don't know how to behave, I don't know how to behave. And if I don't change my way, if I take me to my grave. Welcome to Outlaw's Evidence of the Unseen, exceptional stories and conversations that weave history, religion, arts, and politics into the fabric of our greater cultural narrative. I am Ray Curenton, singer, songwriter, and producer. I'm Tim Dillinger, uh, historian, uh, writer, storyteller,
1: sometimes singer.
0: All right. And if you like the show, be sure to subscribe and tell everyone you know to tune in as well. <clears throat> and if you feel so inclined, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. This helps more people find us. And today we are going to talk about something that we talk a lot about all the time and uh, felt like it was important, I guess, to make as one of our earlier episodes because I feel like it, it's going to come up in <laughs> more and more conversations because it just is a continual ongoing conversation in our home and that is all about praise and worship music and, and Tim just made a face <laughs> this is not an impartial conversation it's for my, not it's not yeah, go ahead Go ahead. Well, well, I was just gonna say it's talking about praise praise and worship music and how its infiltration um into the Christian and gospel music landscape has uh completely altered the course of the the genre and on that level has informed the politic of not just the music but of what being a Christian, a modern Christian, yeah. looks like.
1: It's like COVID. <laughs> I would compare it to COVID. And how the it new is,
0: normal. Then it's the new normal. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm trying. I'm trying to think of a way to, because I'm I'm thinking of the people who are listening to this show and probably don't even know what we mean when we separate praise and worship music from. Other Christian music, mm-hmm. other gospel music, and so for Yeah, and so, or they just, you know, they probably don't even listen to the music. And so what, if you could explain what praise and worship music is specifically and what makes it different from just contemporary Christian music or gospel music and why that, that, that difference matters.
1: Well, in sh- well, in short, I don't know if you want me to give like the little history piece here in terms of we can the, get into the of history
0: it. later, but just kind of, yeah, okay. as a framework.
1: Well, in short, praise and worship music really originated as church, contemporary church music. Mm-hmm. I'll say it like that. So yes. when you're in a, and I will say it like this, a white church experience, uh-huh. this was not a black church phenomenon yeah at all so there were these little choruses they're like little mantras you know these little songs that they would sing in in service but they people would leave church and this was not the music they wanted to just play in their car all day long so right. contemporary like, christian music evolved as like a form of pop music so you were still getting like traditional singer-songwriter you know verse chorus verse chorus bridge out songs that got played on the radio Mm -hmm. and you know we'll get into the history of how it originated and all that later but uh for the last 30 years or so late 90s so maybe a little less probably like 25 years Mm -hmm. this has become the music that became dominant on the airwaves yeah
0: synonymous with 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 Christian, Christian music, Christian
1: music, is- and
0: what makes it, I, you know, because I'm thinking of people who, you know, either grew up or even still like go to church and sing hymns, mm-hmm. and like the difference between that and what praise and worship music now is in many churches. Yes, as that congregational music, mm-hmm. and you're talking about then contemporary Christian music outside of that being, you know, it's not like people were you know, playing hymns in the car, singing them around the house, necessarily. Or to that extent, praise and worship songs. Right.
1: And there was definitely, and again, it's part of the history, I mean, there was definitely the availability of that music for them to purchase Mm -hmm. and listen to in that way if they wanted to. But it is not what was the dominant seller. It was not what people really wanted to listen to all day long. And so what started happening in the 90s this music became, really, I mark Michael W. Smith's album as, like, when it contempor- when it completely, like, crossed over the edge. And this became the music that artists started doing mm-hmm. as their <laughs> art. Yeah. <laughs> as their albums. And so, you know, like, there's an entire generation now that knows nothing but this music as the norm. And, and that's troubling to me because they don't know what to do with, like, actual songs when they hear them.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, (laughs) Well, what defines the sound um, or compositional structure of praise and worship music that makes it different?
1: Well, these days, like for the white folks in particular, it's very much like just listening to YouTube, but with like these (laughs) really, you know, ethereal, like sadomasochistic lyrics about the things you want God to do with you, you Mm. know, to you, like... I can't breathe without you suffocate me, Jesus like that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah. It's very like saturate me, um, infiltrate me, you know, take me over. No more of me. It's shift very, the atmosphere. yes. Yeah, it's very Harry Potter for Jesus. Yeah.
0: Um, There's not much of a narrative beyond talking to God. And even that conversation isn't very complex. Well, no, because it's just telling him things about himself. Yes, you know, exalting him and over and then you know they always you know go back to the Psalms and how the Psalms you know just just edify and exalt the Most High, and so that's what we need to be doing all the time is just talking to God and telling him how how wondrous He is and how amazing He is, but also asking Him to uh, visit, I guess the the. the room (laughs) Mm -hmm. room. and, and change how it feels, make it, you know, more elevated spiritually, make it some, um, enchanting encounter and also like a lot of self deprecation, Yes, yes. like a lot of diminishing of the humans in the room or the human being singing. And because we must elevate or make God greater than us, it then means that we have to replace me, Lord, with you and we're not worthy to be in your presence, but you love us somehow anyway. Like a lot of that over and over again as well.
1: Yet as they stand on the like big rock concert stage (laughs) with lights and (laughs) yeah, big swirling, you know, clouds of smoke and yeah. all of that yeah all yeah. as that's all happening because it's like completely self-depreciating yet also narcissistic all at the same time
0: yes yes it's,
1: it's really i don't want to use any medical terms because i don't want to offend anybody but it is really like not balanced
0: yeah yeah you talk about the youtube thing sometimes there are verses but usually it really just does feel like one long vamp yeah like you know, it's just a chant that we're going to say over and over again. And then maybe it turns into a second chant, oh, yeah, this over, and over there's again. the
1: spontaneous
0: worship too. and the going back and yes. forth, and yes, and then a lot of ad libbing over what's being said, which is really just again, regurgitating a lot of the rhetoric we just talked about or specific scriptures. you know they 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 call it uh, exhorting, exhorting Ex- yes. exhorting. and yeah musically we are talking just like bottom shelf chord structure chord progressions two chords two (laughs) yeah two two, three chords tim likens them to nursery rhymes because of just how simplistic uh the music is um i remember a lot of synth strings as a child oh very much yeah, yeah very much
1: <laughs> which of course you know when worship made its way into the Black Church, yeah, that became a really big thing. Thank you, Juanita Bynum. Yes, don't forget to reference episode number two <laughs> where we do discuss this. But yes, yeah, I mean, yeah, the synth strings were like the real sign of he was there. Like yes. he's here. Yes. he's here. Don't, don't you feel like you're in the King
0: James Some, version? Somehow right that now? that synth string just just is is just the. The, 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 mar- flood, the, the flood, the floodgates have opened, yeah. and he, he the, glory. Yes, do everywhere. you smell it? Do you smell the holy scent of his? No, but I see gold dust. <laughs> All right, that was bitchy. <laughs> um, <laughs> anything else we need to talk about, just in terms of framing what it is before you, you know, start digging in more into the history? I guess. Well, no, I mean, I and I think.
1: My biggest beef is not even... I mean, I don't get it, and I don't appreciate it. I don't really don't care for it. Um, and we can get into later, like, my whole... I have whole problems with the, just the theology of the concept of worship in that way.
0: Mm-hmm. That's
1: a whole nother conversation. But I don't even care that they have it. That's fine. You can have it. Why does it have to be the only thing? Why
0: does it have to be the only thing? It's, it's like... Tyler Perry's Monopoly on black cinema Mm -hmm. it's like okay sure if that's the thing you feel like is just so entertaining and you love it and you can't get enough of it fine why is that the only thing that gets budgeted why is it the only thing that gets distributed was it the only thing that gets any kind of recognition it's the only thing we see in here
1: well, and I will delve into I I I mean I think that's part of the history too. Mm-hmm. The reasons that that is what it is today have a lot to do with the past, and we can talk about that. But yeah, yeah, it yeah, is like the outside
0: only- of me finding it po- problematic, just from a you know theological standpoint or a psychological standpoint. You know, if you want to mm-hmm. have it, sure. But why is it the only thing we ever see now?
1: Well, and here? Dr. Leah Payne. Um, Who You should find her on Twitter uh, and Instagram. She's actually writing a book about contemporary Christian music right now for an academic press. It's wonderful work that she's doing. But she uh, shared an article this past week about um, a study with worship leaders about the life of worship songs becoming shorter and shorter. Mm-hmm. That where we used to, you know, create standards, you know, mm-hmm. there were standard songs that came out of CCM that actually made their way into worship services back in the 80s mm-hmm. that lived for like 30 years. Now the 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 life term of these songs is like barely months yeah. at this juncture um, because they're constantly needing new material. So there's also it's almost like the streaming model converging with. The worship (laughs) trend has also shifted the ways that churches are selecting music. And so it's not even about giving people um, continuity, you know, these songs that stay with them for a lifetime, like Mm -hmm. that's over.
0: Well, and yeah, I do think the streaming era has completely ruined because there's this need to constantly view music as content mm-hmm. and be constantly generating more and more of it. And so you're now seeing these worship collectives, these these troops <laughs> of all these different praise and worship leaders, and they're constantly workshopping and making all these new songs and generating all this output, the Hill songs, the Evelation worships, the Maverick City music, and I want to talk about them later mm-hmm. um, and how problematic I think they are. But you see them, you know, constantly putting out new albums, new EPs, new live versions of the songs and, you know, generating more and more songs. And it really does go to show that prolific really does just mean a lot of output. It really doesn't necessarily mean a lot of quality output because at a certain point, there's only so much you can say within those confines of exhorting God, <laughs> diminishing you as a human being and, you know, needing to set the atmosphere for his, his visitation, you know, it's, it's just, hasn't it all been said at a certain point?
1: Well, and I, well, yeah, I have something else to say about that, but I'll hold it because <laughs> it, it, it's connected to other things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's, Yeah. There's reasons that this is the dominant music yeah. and there are, you know, I'm always going to be the person that's like, let's look at the bigger picture. Let's stand up and look over this. Why is this what they want you to be doing with your time? And yeah. by they, I mean the gatekeepers, the yeah. people that are selling you this music, the people that are in partnership with your pastors to play this music in your church, so that you then want to hear it all day long,
0: yeah,
1: um, and make this a lifestyle, like the whole concept of worshiping. I mean, when worship is now an identity mm-hmm. worshiper, I hate it. I I really hate it. Yeah, I'm a worshiper, and really, that's wonderful. What does that mean, and what does that do for anybody?
0: Yeah. Well, and it, it really connects to the whole. It's not a religion; it's a relationship <laughs> thing. Yeah, it, it is that that need to. You know it's not enough to just be a christian it's not enough to just attend church it's it's some kind of extra identity some kind of bonus brownie points princess points (laughs) that you are getting by saying that you know you somehow have some stronger connection with your higher power than everybody else or than just the the regular lay member yes all right so um Did you want to talk about the history stuff now? Is there more to? Well, yeah, I think it's kind of
1: important to like look at the roots of this music and where it really originated. So it it came out of in the um, late '60s. uh, Hippies started um, converting to Christianity.
0: Yes, and we're going to talk even more extensively about. Jesus, Jesus music movement, and yeah. the movement in um, another episode. But yeah, we can kind of give a, a taste of that now.
1: So these these young people started converting to Christianity and they did not, they were actually not welcome in churches. Mm-hmm. They So they would go to churches and they would be told they couldn't come in. Um, I mean, I've documented some of these stories in my writing, like of artists even inviting Jesus people to come see them at a church and they would get turned away at the door. Um, So this was a norm back then ways that um, white congregations monitored who had accessibility Mm -hmm. uh, to their churches
0: not come as you are not
1: come (laughs) as you are come basically if you look a particular way which signals to us that you're in a particular economic place Mm -hmm. as well and so uh, these young people started gathering on their own and um, making their own music to sing and they were largely choruses. Um, one of the big ones that, you know, people still circulate or used to circulate, I was going to say to this day, probably not anymore, was the Alleluia Chorus, hmm. you know, um, which Benny Hinn has <laughs> made yes. infamous. I was going to say they do because of <laughs> yeah. Benny Hinn. Yeah. Benny Hinn, yeah. But that was, you know, one of the early choruses of the movement. And, you know, those kinds of songs were what uh, they were singing, largely with acoustic guitars. And there was a church in California. Um, Calvary Chapel that um, ultimately let these young people completely shift their church. Mm -hmm. And they invited them in they started singing their songs they let them come in barefoot and in their torn up jeans and however they showed up. Mm -hmm. And um, they of course being business people, uh, the church started a label in 1971 called Maranatha Music and they really were like the, the, the first to recognize this music was sellable and that they could do something with it. And so they formed a label called Maranatha Music that was not exclusively worship music, but it was like the Jesus music bands mm-hmm. that were writing some of the songs. And so anyways, they really over the course of the 70s became um, a force Yeah, and were
0: distributed by word. And this was like a time when like. Printed music was such a huge industry, yes. too. And so, yes. you know, to have hymnals yes. be an industry itself. Yeah. And, and then to have, you know, songbooks and things of the Christian, and to go, okay, well, this is going to be in everybody's church because yes. everybody's going to want to sing these songs. That's right. Yeah, that's bank.
1: And that was, their huge part of their money was the books. Yeah. I mean, they just had, you know, these spiral bound books mm-hmm. uh, that had the sheet music in it. And so these choruses made their way into churches all around yeah. the world. Yeah. Um, it's important to note one of their early signees was Children of the Day, uh, who now like the first real CCM um, lesbian, Marcia Stevens Pino was the one of the chief writers of that group. Uh, she was on Maranatha Records.
0: It always comes back to the gays. Doesn't yeah. It? yeah,
1: And she was not. Of course, she was married at the time to a to a man. Uh, she wrote one of the central songs of the Jesus movement for these. Tears, I died. Anyways, I think it's important just to note she was a part of this movement. Yeah, and so the the thing that I think is really important about what Maranatha did, though, was it was not a big leap for them to realize, oh, we should also be doing children's music. Oh, God, <laughs> and yeah. so, because in my mind, words I've and you said this before, like worship music is children's music. Yes, and so they were responsible for salty and kids praise, like oh, these children's yeah. musicals that. And again, largely white spaces were huge in Mm. the
0: uh, 80s. I totally forgot about Salty. Yeah. Oh my God. Hold on. I I gotta look this up now. Like I'm I'm having a piece of my brain being triggered right now he was a singing hymnal <laughs> he was a singing hymnal what an odd looking thing like it, was. it wasn't even was it blue it, it why was, blue. was it blue we did I this we did this at my school like I am scarred <laughs> by salty and the kids praise songs but the, what they were it looks like a raisin but just more boxy like I don't even think children like I certainly as a child wasn't fully connecting like oh it's a Book of Song, like, it just, yeah, okay, go ahead, sorry. <laughs>
1: yeah, so,
0: I mean, these were
1: also worship songs, so they get these children singing these worship songs as well, and so these were, like, spring musicals, and those kinds of, they became events, mm-hmm. and so Christian schools were doing them with their children's choirs, and, and, You know, youth groups were doing this at their churches. And so it becomes a whole nother enterprise. But what are they doing largely? Worship music. Yeah. And so Maranatha, they were like a a seller. Like they stayed consistent. But again, they weren't competing with the sales of like Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith. Right. You know, those pop music really was king. The
0: demographic was separate.
1: Yes, but where it all changed, and I would really love to know. So, Integrity Music came along in 1987. Okay. And what they did was... Which is
0: an interesting year, because... The Baker Scandal. Yeah, Baker Scandal, Amy Grant had like really crossed over at that point. Yep. And other artists had really crossed over at that point. Yes,
1: And so with the Baker scandal happening, I've always said that was like the central moment because CCM uh, with the demise of PTL, contemporary Christian music really lost its main gateway into Christian people's televisions, Mm -hmm. you know, into their homes in that way. If they weren't listening to Christian radio already, which played that kind of music, the PTL club really was the place where a lot of people were discovering contemporary Christian music. And they actively work to promote it. Um, mm-hmm. And I've said this before; they were not uh, the version of Jim Baker that we see today. The PTL Club was actually seen as really liberal yeah. at that time. So Integrity Music, right in the the you know the vortex of the Baker scandal, they start a music club. So they come out of nowhere, and I remember my grandparents had the subscription. So you churches would pay; they'd get one cassette a month.
0: Oh, so like um, the Columbia House. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you pay
1: a certain amount of money every year. You get a tape every month. I want to say you also got some of the materials with the lyrics and stuff okay. in addition. And so their production to me was a little bit more, um, uh, I don't want to say aggressive and edgy because it was not aggressive in that sense. But it was more upbeat maybe is the way than Maranatha was. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, And they also had a central leader on every tape. So it wasn't just like a chorus of people singing choruses. You had a praise and worship leader. Mm -hmm. And so they start doing um, these releases every month. And these songs then started making their way into churches in a different way than Maranatha. Because they're being like force fed at this point. Because churches are saying also, if I'm paying for this service, guess what we're going to do? Right. We're going to sing these songs because we're spending money on this. Yeah. And, and so, so these were the Hosanna... Yeah, this was Hosanna Integrity. Yeah. And um, soon they then moved away from the um, club model and they just became a full force label. And they had major distribution and they were responsible for bringing us like Ron Cannoli, uh, Don Moen.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, well, I would imagine the Christian bookstores helped make that totally. more... Totally. Oh, yeah. It, yeah.
1: Yeah. There was a whole... They had their own section. hmm and it became a whole thing. And so then what started happening was, this was like the beginning. Ron Cannoli was really what like the um, the bridgeway of taking worship music then into the black church. Yes. And he was really the beginning of that.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was I, the beginning of that. We grew up singing lots of his stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so to me, it's just all gone downhill from there. But that's, <laughs> uh, that's how it ended up becoming what it is. And so I, what I wanted to say about you know, integrity also and how it became what it is today in terms of it being the dominant music is that in 1987, when the PTL scandal happened, the Christian gatekeepers really did decide, yeah, this crossover stuff y'all are doing mm-hmm. has got to stop mm-hmm. because, you know, this Baker scandal. And then a year later, the Jimmy Swaggart scandal, like it brought too much attention mm-hmm. to the church. And so they, brought everything inward and so what then became the model for non-worship music was like groups like for him point of grace like very slick clean cut these were the a and b selection people that would come to your church services and your conferences and sing Mm -hmm. they were not trying to get up on a stage at a theater right and and sing for the world and draw people in yeah and so it completely shifted the attention of who the the christian music industry was trying to reach and so the church really became the core audience. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't the case before. Yeah. You had the brief little crossover model in like 91 where we had Amy Grant and Baby Baby. We had Michael W. Smith and Place in This World and Kathy Tricoli with Everything Changes and B.B. and CC. And like a year later, they were done and CC honey, was alone in his presence. Mm-hmm. Um, and she really then jumped on board. Yes.
0: She jumped she on saw board. definitely it as a sustainable model for her
1: and started her own label then she brought us vicky yoey Mm -hmm. um need i say more uh Uh, yeah (laughs) and so it's become just more and more the thing as the church has become the mega church has Mm -hmm. become the norm and back then the mega church was the exception
0: when did the whole like platforming (laughs) the praise and worship leaders on like was that what they were always doing, the Integrity Hosanna thing? Not initially, but it grew into that rather quickly. Because, yeah, I'm thinking of, like, the Shout to the Lord. Oh, yeah, like, Hillsong. Hills yeah. Hillsong came through Integrity. Yeah.
1: And so, yes, you get the whole Hillsong model. Then you get Israel and Newbury. Yes. Gungor. And these people all became stars. Mm-hmm. And And so here's the other thing I want to say, though, too, is that in the 80s and early 90s, we had, if you were a listener of contemporary Christian music... You had singer-songwriters that were not just making you worship, <laughs> do the worship songs, but they were writing songs about their questions and their thoughts on theology.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And what has happened, what time has proven, is that those of us that came through that, most of us has, have left. Mm-hmm. And I would, will always argue that it was the singer-songwriters that gave us the space to evaluate it all to think about why we believed what we believe yes and so what they've realized is oh yeah this music makes people leave. This music makes people think too much. And so we're just going to give them, they're going, and they're going to have to saturate themselves in it Mm -hmm. and let it become the only thing they do. And they don't get a moment to think for themselves. Yes. And so I really, for that reason, I see worship music as quite dangerous.
0: Definitely because, I mean, Christian music, period, any kind, well, music, period, you know, Christians, because they're constantly being so overly. They're overly scrutinizing all media that comes in. Yes. There's a a special magnifying glass over music and lyrics and what's being said. And if those words are edifying God or not edifying God. And if they're biblical or if they're not biblical. And so, yeah, that was such a thing with, with, you know, Christian music, CCM contemporary music that was coming out. And so those, like, questioning songs, all that was just, you know held to such a firm hand and then so yeah and so then the praise and worship music on a level answers that but oh, it's right. all because of that then it is even more highly ultra scrutinized yes and it has to go through the filter of and there's been like little controversy verses that neither of us care about but just about like the 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 biblical nature of a song like Donnie McClurkin's We Fall Down. Yes, or you yes. know, like you know, dumb things like that where, you know, is that really biblical? Right. Is that really, you know, edifying to God? You know, the songs about uh the Holy Spirit falling down, is does the spirit really fall down? Or is God's, you know, is the spirit in us? Is he already here? Why are we asking him to come? Come by here, Lord, if he's already here. Things like that, just constantly pecking and pecking and pecking. And so, yeah, the the praise and worship music would be a great answer to that. If you're recruiting, quote unquote, songwriters who are already doing that work for you, the self-policing of yes. whether or not the song can work in as many congregations as possible, but what that does is completely dumb down what can be said because if you step outside of that box, what works in this charismatic church may not work in that insert denomination church, and you want it to be as universal as possible, but also biblical.
1: Well, and I you know, I also really love when, you know, People who aren't from this world hear worship music and have conversations with us and are like, I don't even know what that means. I don't even... I don't want to know what that means. (laughs) It's actually like repellent to people that aren't in the culture. Mm -hmm. And so... There's just a to me, it's contradictory that this is the only thing you do um, when you are allegedly well. And I would actually argue they don't actually want to bring anybody else in. I think, well,
0: yeah, and I think that definitely shows the difference in mission and what you're talking about when you were talking about like crossover versus bringing everything in mm -hmm. and really the CCM contemporary gospel model in my mind was always about outreach yes it was about using that music to connect with youth and teens and you know people that maybe grew up in the church but aren't in it anymore or you know just have no idea at all what any of this might be about and showing them a a life a lifestyle a way of being a way of viewing the world that might appeal to them Whereas the praise and worship music has nothing to do with outreach at all. It is about reaffirming for people that are already in that bubble, in that box, um, making them feel more important.
1: One of the the biggest qualms I have with worship music is the whole concept of what that means. Like, what does it mean to worship? Because I think that we've actually really flubbed up the entire idea of worship as a lifestyle. Yeah, Because... I really am not interested in a narcissistic God that needs to hear about himself all day long or themself all day long. Mm-hmm. I, I just can't even... The, the older I get, the more ridiculous of a notion that is. And I mm-hmm. think, well, you need more to do because if that's... And by you, I mean God. <laughs> like, if that's what you need to be happening all the time, what's wrong with you? The
0: lights and the praises of his people.
1: And I would actually argue that what that could actually mean yeah, is that... God would actually delight in us being kind. God would actually delight in us having introspection and working to be better people in the world, working to, you know, make an impact on people. And that doesn't mean converting them. Mm -hmm. It just means being a friend yeah being compassionate
0: being living compassionate. out the fruit of the spirit allegedly yeah that would yeah. be worship
1: to me and not this cloud of you know whatever that is they experience when they do that mm-hmm. um you're
0: greater than everything lord you're greater yeah. than all of our problems and you're i don't greater-
1: yeah. really know what that does for anybody and so I hear lots of talking about it, but I don't believe anything they say yeah. because again, the fruit speaks for itself. The church would not be in the position it's in. The church is in a shit show
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, as we speak. And I laugh because it has become more and more of a shit show as they have done this crappy music. Yeah through the years. And so clearly it is not doing anything to help them along
0: or think through. It is only accelerating their crash. As they like to pretend, or as they reiterate over and over and over again, that that music is somehow way better or somehow more affirming, more liberating, more whatever, freeing them to really be connected to God than the music that came before. Mm If they even remember the music that came before. But there is a sticking the nose up at, totally. you know, traditional gospel, traditional, yeah.
1: And that's cross-cultural. Mm-hmm. The white folks do that, and the black church has done that. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, you know, there is a... I mean, if I hear one more critique of Lord Don't Move the Mountain, <laughs> you know, from from friends that grew up in the, in the yeah. black church, it's just like, do you understand, like, the context of that song and what that means and that there's actually, like... It's actually about fortitude. That's what that right. song is actually about. And no ma- no mountain is magically moving.
0: It's right. Like, it's also being realistic. It's realistic. Yeah. yeah. And
1: so, <laughs> like, you may not want to say it, but the mountain's still going to be there. So, yeah. you know, get to climbing. And so, you know, that's cross-cultural. There's this whole, like, looking back at the past. I mean, they look at the CCM folks like they were just the most fleshly, worldly, mm-hmm. you know, self-absorbed people as they get in church with their lattes today and their, you know... Pleather. Yeah. And do their worship music. So, you know, and I, I know that a certain part of that is generational. I know that there was a contingency of artists in the 70s and 80s that thought
0: what they were doing was so much more ahead of, you know, I know right. that that's... Yeah, that's just, I'm not my ancestors. But also, no, what you're saying, because there there is also this notion, of, and we're going to get into that when we talk about, like, positivity, culture, and all that shit, you know, but there is this sense of if the music isn't the secret <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know if i'm just speaking about things as they are you know then where's the faith where's the faith to, to 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 make the music you know align with what god wants for me which is to overcome the situations and so for my mom it's coming up the rough side of the mountain you know why would i want to confess that well is that what's going on or isn't it we've been through yeah. some things we need to talk about the hardship
1: yeah You might need to put your mountain climbing boots on for a little while. Yeah, And so I I also feel like worship music is responsible for the detachment from reality that we see so much in, like, largely church people who have, you know, fallen into, run towards QAnon. You know, I mean, there's just a detachment from reality, and I can't help but connect that to these unrealistic messages yeah you know that they get in the songs and the sermons and it's all about this worship
0: as a lifestyle where that becomes the only way they think and view life and if you're constantly only looking up at god you're not bothering to look around at each other (laughs) or deal with the material deal with the material world that we're living in and figuring out how we might solve some problems here because your only concern is about reaching the next plane. Yeah. Going to the next dimension.
1: Yes. Of the glory cloud. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> There's also the ramifications, the, the the praise and worship ramifications on what kind of singer gets platform. Oh my God. Yes. And what that means was we look at what kind of gospel artist is now a viable successful gospel artist that gets the deal that gets the you know radio play and yeah it it totally shifted to a certain extent the even sound of the the the, the voice completely and i see that even more so on the white side the ccm side than on the gospel side but the gospel side it's you know happening um but also again this lifestyle that the 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 person on that stage has to sell back to yes. the audience. Yes. And what they, how they go about performing, because they don't want to call it performing. They don't want to call being on that stage a stage. But that's what it is. It, what is. it is still getting up on stage and performing something. And what is that performance? And it's, you know, again, needing to be someone who exhorts in that kind of way. The ad-libbing isn't what ad-libbing was in gospel. Now it's, you know, all about regurgitating the 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 verses and, again, that replace me, Lord, with you and we are nothing but you step in and you're the almighty presence. You know, just saying that over and over again. It's having to do that, which then shuns anyone that can't do that or doesn't want to do that um, or is used to a more traditional way of doing. Well, yeah, it becomes an
1: indicator of another person's lack of spirituality in their mind because you're not willing to perform it for Mm -hmm. them in that way.
0: Yeah, and then it creates an impossible standard. We joked because we saw an article a couple weeks ago. I guess they're experimenting now with.
1: do <laughs> <laughs> finish the sentence so they know what we're talking about.
0: <laughs> they are experimenting with AI worship leaders, right? Yes. <laughs> but it should have been all. Are they going to be holograms? I'm, I didn't really click in and read the article, but I just go. You know what? If any genre needs that, yeah. Or of any genre, you know, if that could work anywhere, absolutely. Because the music's already so formulaic. Yeah. And yeah, you're creating such an image, this impossible perfect standard of what being a praise and worship leader really looks like. Yeah. A minister of music. And we see over and over again scandals (laughs) from these people because they can't, you know... They're just people. They have the same stuff we all have. And they have the, the added baggage and stress, as we talked about with, you know, sexual, you know, just repression, what that does and how that then, you know, it, it, it's absolutely a setup. So, yeah, have your AI robot singers that, that would do really well if that's what you want to have. But uh, to your point,
1: mm-hmm. I really do lament, like, the lack of voice. That we really do not get to hear just skilled singers. Like, there will never be... I'm going to put these two together. It's kind of an odd pairing. But we're never going to have a Sandy Patty and a LaShawn Pace again. Like, the days of people that were just incredible interpreters. Mm -hmm. Because there's no material for those people in that genre anymore. Mm -hmm. Nobody's buying that. Nobody's interested in that. And actually, the idea of soloists in that way, Mm -hmm. like singers, Mm -hmm. is seen as like... Being self-absorbed. Like, there's a whole perception of that as grandiose. Yeah. Making yourself the center. And if you're not part of some, like, freaking worship collective... Right. You know, with 600 people on the stage jumping around, you know, you're just too about yourself. Yeah. And so I really grieve just the lack of voice that we get anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's over. Yeah. And I'm also gonna lament... The fact that the imperfect voice also doesn't have a place. You know, the the interpreter who may not be the beautiful beautifully toned <laughs> singer, but is gonna sing with some real feeling. I mean, we've really completely lost and that grieves me. Um, gospel's connection. I'm really just totally. specifically talking about the black church now, but gospel's connection to the blues. Yes. Yes. Again, because we're not allowed to sing the blues. We're not allowed to sing about coming up the rough side of the mountain. Right. And so, you know, why would an Albertina Walker, you know, if anyone sounds like that in the church today. They got nowhere to go. Where are they
1: going to go? Nowhere. I mean, And well, and you raise right, such an important point because I talked with my godmother in St. Petersburg a few, maybe a month ago. And she's 70 something now
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i said you know what do you think about the music now and she was like oh it ain't like what we did she was like it's all over you know mm-hmm. they, they don't sing the, they don't sing like we used to sing and they don't sing the songs we used to sing and she was like it's just for the young people now and we came from a place that everybody in the community had a voice we still had in the early 90s we were still having testimony service and so you could stand up in church start a song everybody would join in and help you sing it everybody felt connected to that and everybody had a voice and not everybody could sing and that was okay because it was about what they needed to say and what they wanted to sing and praise team life and i hear these bitchy-ass worship leaders all the time. I have friends who, you know, work in the church, and what they look for in singers to be on that platform, you would think they were going to the Grammys, the kinds of voices they want to have, and excellence. And I just go, you can have all that excellence. Y'all still got shitty songs. Yeah, Y'all still doing, you know, it's a horrible model, and all these people feel excluded. Yeah. I'll always go back to... Uh, the last time I sang in a church, we sat through all these worship songs that morning. I will never forget it. And I got up and just did some old school songs, mm-hmm. real songs, mm-hmm. like the hymns. He looked On my fault, you know, shine on me, those kinds of songs. And this lady came up to us after the service and she said something to the effect of, I don't remember, I don't relate to all that stuff they're doing, mm-hmm. but that I relate to. Mm-hmm. And she was not that much older than me. No. And so I just feel like there's an entire segment of people that feel they just keep showing up because it's just what you do. Mm-hmm. But they don't feel connected to it. And eventually those people are going to leave because and I feel like COVID was probably a huge uh break for people because it gave them
0: permission to stop going. Yeah. And you know, there's a contingency of millennials, I'm seeing like Gen Z kids now, like repeatedly and it's funny because you like a piece of you rolls your eyes when you see them do this, but another piece of me kind of is like hopeful, Because they're like discovering, especially with this long tail of a Spotify or an Apple Music and Mm -hmm. YouTube, they may stumble across or go on a bunny trail if they're that curious and discover old songs. And I'm seeing this happening in the pop and rock world where they're going, like they're finding old music from like the 60s and 70s. And they're like, oh my God, that music's so great. Like they're loving it. They're loving it because they're getting stuff that they, you know, are not getting today in today's music. And, you know, I, a piece of me wants to be hopeful that things like that might happen for the children, the youth that are still in these churches, that they may go back and connect with this old Christian music, this old gospel music and go, wow, who knew music could be made this way as a Christian? Yep. Yep. One can dream. One
1: can dream. I mean, I think all the time about all the great music that I got to grow up on and, what I find, sadly, particularly with, like, ex-evangelicals and, and people that have migrated out of the church, is that the, the, there's so much resentment about what it was that there's not even a lens to be able to go back and listen mm-hmm. to some of the other things that were made during that time that weren't the messaging. They, there's just not even the ability, they're so traumatized that there's not even the ability to go back and try to recognize that there were people there saying the things that we're all saying now. There were people there saying them all along. Right. And to me, that was my saving grace. But um, I don't think other people really noticed in a large way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think the gatekeepers did, which is why it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. I mean, there's no place for anyone to do any of that work. And I do hope that people can find the wherewithal to look back and recognize that, you know... People that have resisted in this world, there's a long line, you know, of us goes all the way back, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, we've always existed. This is not new. Um, But I also find like I see affirming uh, friends who have affirming churches who love this worship music. And I'm like, you might want to look at that because. You're now bringing this music, even if you find that it can work in your space and with your theology today, at its core, yeah, it's just a problem. Yeah. And it's not just a problem for me. It's yeah. a cultural problem. Yeah. And, you know, but there's this, you know, model that's been created and everybody wants to feel like they are connected to the larger model somehow.
0: Yes. Yes. And not wanting to, you know, that whole, like, not wanting to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so if I can at least find the music, but, you know, and that's something that, my, you know, I myself have because I didn't grow up in the 70s or 80s for that matter. Right. Like, you know, I came into it and the praise and worship music was all we did on Sundays. And so, you know, there was a period of time where, you know, I just wasn't interested in listening to anything that I grew up listening to um, in my own deconstruction journey. And since then, you know, kind of going back and revisiting as I prepared, you know, my, my, the album that I'm working on right now that I'm finishing, um, really wanting to try to tap into the contemporary stuff that was trying to do that outreach stuff. The very few artists that were allowed to continue to do that during the late nineties, early two thousands, and also looking at the praise and worship music that i was you know listening to and you know i think another piece of it especially for the musicians um that come through that world there's this like needing to at the very least love what the the music was doing love the arrangements and the you know see the musicality of the drummers or the the keyboard players or whatever but even that, like you know, for me, I just go really like that's that's craft, mm-hmm. you know, just to kind of regurgitate that same sound over and over and over again. They needed to be this big, huge. I mean, on the, the on the CCM side, it's like the U2 rock thing. Right. I don't even know what this really overly elaborate, super duper clean production on I the black it. side hate is it. is even trying to be. Because it's just so big, but also small at the same time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I, it just feels really lazy to me, as a producer anyway. Yeah. Because it's just chasing that same sound over and over again. And those same kind of, oh, fun little accidental chord things. But, you know, it's just... With even less lazy. feeling each time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It's odd. It's odd. It's an odd model. And for music that is supposed to be about, like, immerse me, fill me, there's like... A lot of volume, but not a lot of passion, mm-hmm. and that's on both sides. That's on the, the the white side and the black side. It's like, you know, I don't want to hear nobody tell me nothing about Tasha Cobbs. I'm not, no, I'm not listening to that. I'm not interested in that. Yeah, because um, it's just a lot of volume with no fire. Yeah, what y'all like are the the changes. Yeah, you like the changes. You like the runs, but you can't tell me there's anything in that that's changing or helping or right you're not feeling anything from that. You just like the music. Yeah. And that's what I feel about all the 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 white CCMN and stuff. You like that it looks cool. That's basically all I've really got. You like that it's this trancey um, thing, but there's nothing I feel nothing. Yeah. And of course that's I'm sure that's my problem because I shouldn't be looking for feelings. But <laughs> <laughs> But I am because underneath the feeling is heart. You know, that tells me where your heart is. And when I just see like vapid nasal sounds and lots of lighting and sound effects, I'm just, yeah. And it's also just a problem as a model because now I'm also seeing, and I'm going to critique it, these people that left the church that were musicians and then couldn't figure out what to do with themselves when they left because it wasn't sustainable anymore. Mm -hmm. Now taking worship pastor positions at more progressive churches. Mm -hmm. No, no. I don't like this whole model. It's all a problem. So they've created this entire industry now off of this. And something will happen. It will also crash. It will also end. And all that will come from it is something even
0: worse. When was your first time, and maybe you don't remember, maybe it was just always a part of your framework, but when people needed that whole elite gatekeeping thing, talked about anointing it's something that some singers have, but others don't.
1: Oh, that's all from the earliest I can remember. Yeah, that's say, always, me too.
0: Me too, because I was trying to pinpoint it, and I just went, no, that's always been the case. Yeah. Because you can be gifted. Mm-hmm. You can be talented. Yes. But it doesn't. <laughs> but mean, you can be gifted,
1: but it still doesn't mean, yeah, yeah, that you're anointed. And it was all about that, like, and I appreciate my godmother's Let's just sing it like you mean it. That was all I, that was our conversation, you know, there, but uh, but she, uh, there was also a subscription to that idea, you know, mm-hmm. that we needed to be in prayer and we needed to, and at a certain point, and I was very young, I mean, like fifteen or sixteen, and I just went, "This, too, I'm not doing this. This is
0: too much work." Music like, this, as ministry. Yeah,
1: no, and I never wanted to do that. Like, yeah. can I just be a, can I just be a great singer?
0: Yeah. Can I just sing? The needing to fast and go into consecration before you oh, that even get up. Yeah, yeah never.
1: And, <laughs> no, that wasn't going to work for me. I was never going to do it. But they, it was certainly always in conversation. And the ways that they judged you. I mean, I mean, there were. they would call you up to pray. And if your prayer didn't quite meet, make up to snuff, you know, wasn't quite up to snuff, then you clearly weren't, you know, really as committed to your walk as you needed to be. And, you know, all of these
0: hoops. And so
1: by the time I was in my 20s, I was just like, I don't give a shit. I just don't. I'm not jumping through all these hoops for y'all. I'm not. Yeah. Because at a certain
0: point, at a certain point, it requires your buy-in requires that you start judging. Yes. That you start being an Uh asshole Uh and start viewing other people as unworthy. Oh, yeah. In order for you to, you know, be elevated to that... You know, I get to go.
1: <laughs> I still can hear the mothers, you know, in our in our little church. And we weren't as mean as other places. But I can still hear the mothers, they ain't got no Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. They ain't got no Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They do a little more fasting, a little more praying. Mm-mm. Yeah. They ain't got no Holy Ghost. So, yeah, it creates this whole hierarchy.
0: The other thing, and I had to look this up really quickly just to make sure I was right. Because I remember there was a time when... On the Christian side, Christian music side, the white side, it's so funny, the language, Mm -hmm. um, they have multiple formats. Mm -hmm. They still do. Mm -hmm. Whereas on the gospel side, it's still kind of just gospel. Yeah. And I think for me, that really does inform why it's hit a little harder on the black side of the music. Than on the Christian side, yeah, because there, you know, there are at least still you've got your Christian AC, adult contemporary. You've got the Christian hit radio side. Right. Um, it doesn't look like Billboard has like a special chart for like Southern Gospel, but Southern Gospel does have a lot of places where it can go. Still, and they have their own
1: chart. They school. have their
0: own charts. They're just not, you know, Nielsen BDS, right? Um, and of course, there are internet stations as well, and Gospel does have the internet stations. Um, Christian hip hop, of course, has its own thing that, you know, has never really bubbled to like terrestrial radio, but yeah, on the, you know, when I look at the gospel chart, you know, there really are just those 30, 40 positions and, you know, when you can only, when all of the different, um, textures and ways of being a gospel artist or a gospel group, um, only get lumped in. To one thing, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you know, it, it, it means that they're hit harder when things like this take over.
1: Well, and it's funny because for years contemporary artists were the ones who paid the price for that on the on the gospel side mm-hmm. because there was no place for contemporary yeah. gospel to go. Yeah. Now the tables have turned, and so now contemporary gospel worship music. Yeah, contemporary
0: worship. I yeah. would call it because it's yeah, it's still not anything that would ever cross over no. onto the urban, the black. R&B hip-hop chart. Yeah, it's just not going to be viable. But now the old sound is what's completely yes. shut out. Yes. And
1: so it's like, you know, it's always an extreme. There's, It's always an extreme in terms of how things get filtered.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that piece is very weird for me. To see young people, meaning people in their 20s, 30s, being the arbiters of the music. Yes. And it not being something that is trying to do any kind of outreach or crossover or be something that just feels modern in a modern world mm-hmm. it's just modern in a modern church
1: yes <laughs> the oh and i'll say this because you know the only one that i feel like has even attempted that um that i loved especially was lexi's record and i will always shout that record out yeah to me it was like the last great contemporary gospel record Yeah.
0: Um, And the very few that get to do it, you know, Corinne Hawthorne's music is more modern sounding, but she also came from the voice. And so she had that built in. Yes. There's places we can take her and do that. It's very few and far between. And they still have to throw a few of those worship songs on their project. They do. And Lexi had to do it as well. Lexi did too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about what made you decide you were going to listen
0: to Maverick City music. I kept seeing them on the iTunes chart at the top all the time all the time and I just wonder what what is that and I didn't know what it was I just saw that it was a group um I don't even think they um I don't even think their picture was on the cover it was one of their their projects or a few of their projects it was like a few and was like volume one volume two volume three and I'm like what is this and so I finally like went just out of curiosity to Spotify and I looked at their bio and their bio was very, it was written in in, a, in an intriguing manner. We come out of nowhere and we're, you know, we, uh, our sound is something that's just not ever, you know, that nobody else has. And when you experience this music, it's, you know, something that's just done like anything you've ever heard of before. And so I just went, okay. And I know that that's, you know, a lot of times just how Christians talk about their experience, um... As artists, anyway, and so I, you know, you take it with a grain of salt. But the fact that it was up there, I just went. Well, let me just see what what this is about. I imagine it probably is like worship music, but maybe it's like a different take on the worship music. I was never the biggest like Israel and New Breed fan, but there were things that I did like every now and then. And so I went. It's probably maybe it's in that vein. Like you know, maybe there will be some things that I can get why people like it. And so I went and I listened started at the beginning. I was in like that volume one project and I just didn't get it. It was nothing about it was anything different than what I'd ever heard. And so it made me look up this article. It's an interview that they did um, with Relevant Magazine uh, with two of the, the leaders and what they are. They are a worship group um and the entire premise is that they are very intentional about being more inclusive of black people and women Pro- probably and partially because all of them have at one point felt like the only one mm-hmm. in these kinds of collectives mm-hmm. or have felt like they've not been able to access those kinds of collectives the hill songs and the you know and so you know it, it feels like a reaction to being on the outside mm-hmm. And so they just decided to come together and make their own thing. And for whatever reason, I think all all of them are bringing some built-in audience because they are respective praise and worship leaders at probably pretty large churches all around the country or maybe even globe. Um, I haven't looked too much into who these people are. Um, because you know, the music just kind of says it. It's just, you know, they're just doing what everybody else this day and age is doing in the realm of making music as Christian people in the church. But this article really put it all into context for me. Um, just about who they are. That the article is how Maverick City Music is breaking the worship music mold. Uh, which again, those are just pretty big words. And then when you hear it, and then when you see read this article and see what they're talking about, I just got no, it's not. No, it isn't. <laughs> um, but also, I came away actually really disturbed by the framework that they're working with and how it then informs. Because since this article this was in May of 2020, they've become even bigger. And they're yeah. on the Stellars and they're winning Stellar Awards. And, they're, you know, they've kind of become the big... Black Christian artist, yeah. you know, and I—it I, doesn't seem like it's stopping. And so, I, a few of the things in the article that initially triggered me, just right out of the gate, was this needing to differentiate themselves from gospel, mm-hmm. needing to see themselves as outcasts because they allegedly. Well, they do. They sound different. They don't sing um, in traditional gospel ways like we talked about earlier in this episode. Which
1: so few of the current artists do anyways. Yeah, I found
0: it very confusing. Like, okay, if this had been written in 1980... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, 92 even. I'll give you the 90s. Like, if this had been written then, I'd go, yeah, sure. There really is a certain kind of... Way a certain tone that an artist has to have, a certain timbre, a certain energy that you have to bring. You can't come in with some little teeny baby voice as a gospel singer. It's just not, you have to sing full body, and it has to come from a certain place. But today, everybody sure. sings with these little teeny voices, and so this this needs it. Just because I'm a black female singer, it doesn't mean I have to sound like Mahalia Jackson. That's a direct quote from one of the leaders, and I'm just like. Mahalia Jackson couldn't even get a hit on today's gospel radio. So what are you even talking about? Well, and this bothered me. This is Tim talking now.
1: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That was Ray. (laughs) Uh, I have more of a pure, straight tone kind of voice. Okay. Torrance Glenn posted on Facebook this past week and said, Would y'all please stop saying pure when you really just mean plain? Yeah. And when I read that, I was like, I am so tired of this whole that cause that's a thing that gets said about worship music. Well, in, when it's contrasted with other forms. It's like, well, it's more pure. It's mm-hmm. pure. And I really dislike that. So is that music dirty?
0: Right. Right. Well, she said grit and growl. When you have enough grit and growl in your voice. And she's probably thinking of the Kimberells of the world. But then to juxtapose that with like a Mahalia Jackson, I just go, that's all over the place. That's not the- even so you don't even That to me feels like a wrestling with racial identity Mm -hmm. or feeling black enough. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you deal, I've dealt a lot with that, like seeing that in especially predominantly white spaces, the kids that get called the Oreos or the kids that get, you know, by other black people often. And that, like, taking that to your fucking grave as like the cross that you had to bear. And it's just like, stop it, stop it. Because. On the flip side of that, you're going to get access to a lot more things as the articulate Black person or as the white, the Black person with the pure straight tone. You're going to be palatable to White people in a way that other Black folks aren't. And Instead of figuring out how you connect with your Blackness and with the Black world, if you feel like you know, you're wrestling with that, instead of figuring out your place in that, just feeling like, well, I'm going to leave that aside and don't put me in that box because I'm special. I just find that so gross and there's just such a a problem with that. The other thing that they um, talk a lot about in the article is about their songwriting and the writing process, which I also just having listened to the final product, I just am not impressed. I don't get what all this laboring about. But I also, though, do connect it to what we talked about earlier about that whole like feeling responsible for making music that's as universal as possible, that is going to be palatable for as many different congregations that hold a lot of different theologies, and needing it to not. Um, Trouble the water <laughs> so that, you know, it can be, you know, in as many churches as possible. Well, the direct quote, you're writing language, basically,
1: that the church is going to sing to God. That responsibility can be so heavy. Yeah. And I just feel like for me, <laughs> just too deep to just stop it too stop it. You're writing a song that a bunch of people are going to sing. You could literally get up and say Mary had a little lamb and they'd yeah. be just...
0: well they talk about a song like how great is our god being like everybody can sing that yeah and that song isn't about anything it's a crappy song (laughs) and yet they want to then say that there's all this freedom god gives us so much freedom to express real emotion and i just go where is it where is it i haven't seen it yet where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Because I don't feel anything It's when I emotion. listen to what y'all do. That's, I don't feel anything. That's an So LOL. where's the emotion? Yeah.
1: It's an LOL. And yeah. I'm crying on the internet. That's all that is. That's not real.
0: Yeah. Stop it. The biggest thing for me, though, uh, in this article and what really like almost stopped me in my tracks because I really got it on another level, what praise and worship music is doing in the black church world is them talking about not initially talking about not wanting to be categorized as gospel because they're black and this Mm -hmm. is a direct quote is that billboard tried to put it out as a gospel record they're talking about their first project because i was black and i was on it and we were like why is this gospel why do you categorize this as gospel and it's not even anywhere along gospel lines and since then since this article i feel like they've gotten over this <laughs> and they, you know, I don't know if it's because the Stellars have called them or because they started to, you know, be honored in bigger ways by just being okay with being labeled as gospel. Right. They've changed their, they changed their tone a little bit, but just again, this need to be differentiated and this need to opt into. If you're saying then, cause you, you know, you start out saying that these, the praise and worship world, the CCM world, it's very, very white, very exclusive. You know, we're trying to bring some exclus- inclusivity into that. But don't categorize this as gospel. I don't want to be a part of, you know, this black thing just because I'm black. What that reads to me is, is you recognize this is a white supremacist world. this This, you know, CCM world, the world of Christian music is white supremacy. And instead of wanting to eradicate that or tear it down, you just want your piece of it. Well, yeah. And they, you know, and they, you know, if you look at their Instagram page or whatever, they post Black Lives Matter stuff. You know, they still speak the language. But when I look at this, I just go, mm, no, you're not really wanting to see anything change, but to you be in it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You to have your piece of it. The last, I think, like, at the very end, they talk about, you know, we're writers at the end of the day. We don't just write one type of music. And mm-hmm. again, I I don't see it. I don't get it. I, don't, I haven't heard it yet. <laughs> And what I've listened to, and it's, (laughs) as someone who really likes music, (laughs) I can usually find a lot that I like about it. You know, the the worship collective stuff, it just bores me. It really bores. It's hard to get through. And I don't get the people who say they need it. Yeah. The people who say it doesn't feel like church without it. They mm-hmm. need that music experience. And they seek out churches specifically for the type of praise and worship mm-hmm. that they have and need it to be of a certain category. I won't even say of a certain level <laughs> of a certain quality because it's not even necessarily about quality, it's just about type.
1: Mm-hmm. Checking all the boxes. All the boxes. Yeah. yeah.
0: They need the rock and roll stage. They need the rock and roll sound. They need to be big. They need, you know. Yes. Did you have anything to say on that? Or
1: well, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of really letting you take the lead on Maverick City because I'm not listening to them. Yeah. I'm not checking it out. I am yeah. so not interested. Yeah. I read this article and I just thought, yeah, I'm never listening to this. Yeah. Because just the whole intention yeah. is antithetical to everything that I yeah. believe in. I, I just find the entire model... Uh, as I've said over and over in this podcast, I just find the entire model and the whole theology behind it problematic.
0: Yeah, and, I, and if I had read this article before <laughs> I listened to it, I probably would have went, got it. Nope, <laughs> not doing it. But yeah, the, this the, the 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 people who say they need to have that experience, need to have praise and worship as a part of their church experience or as a part of their lives, even. Yeah, I. I don't fully get what that is. Well,
1: and it's made it... For me, it's made it impossible to even visit a church. Like, on those rare occasions that we have gone. Mm -hmm. It makes it impossible for me to get... I don't want to have to get
0: through that music. I
1: don't want to sit through the music. Because
0: nine times out of ten, the worship leader is... Fussy. 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 These song, The way they sing these songs is just with such anger. And I don't know, like, even... When I go back and listen to, like, a Caravans or Dorothy Lovecoats or James Cleveland or, you know, insert whatever traditional gospel that isn't allowed in the church anymore, I never got that they were mean. No, you get heart. Or that the music felt harsh or like they were, like warfare like they were in warfare <laughs> and that's what the music uh, sometimes you know especially what I feel like the black worship leaders are doing it it could have a very war thing or it's you know the <laughs> the the white chicks yeah yeah <laughs> there's like no in between yeah there isn't <laughs> there isn't
1: and I just find it terrifying in the white spaces, like the white spaces watching just the masses of people sing these songs. It's terrifying yeah, to me. Yeah. And so I just don't have any, again, I don't have any resonance for it. And it makes me sad that nobody's really looking at like what's underneath it and what it's really actually all about. Yeah. Because it's naive to me to accept that this is for God. Yeah. It's naive to me. Yeah. I mean, I'd rather take, you know, old school stuff because that was actually for them. Mm -hmm. That was for them. And it was about them and uh, a collective experience. And I I can get behind that. I can't get behind whatever this is.
0: Okay. So if if Maverick City music were actually outlaws... they wouldn't exist. If <laughs> they were actually Mavericks on that level,
1: <laughs> we wouldn't even know who they were. <laughs> yeah,
0: we wouldn't. They would not they would not be getting big features. Yeah, there's in major Christian magazines probably.
1: There's no redeeming anything in this model. And so that's to me like if it were outlaw, it just would cease to be. Yeah. Everybody would be actually like writing just songs about their life experiences and not feeling like they needed to write you know, Harry Potter songs for Jesus. It just wouldn't be a thing. We'd actually, outlaw version would be them decrying it. That would be the outlaw version.
0: For them to have a Leslie
1: Phillips experience and say, God, we were really naive and uh, we bought into this model when we were too young to know any better. Yeah. And uh, we're leaving the church and going to figure, we're going to go get, you know, we're going to become massage therapists or something. Yeah.
0: And it would actually be, like, beyond elementary notions. of Black Lives Matter, it would be talking about what it actually looks like to hold an anti-racist politic as a person of faith. Mm -hmm. And having really hard conversations then about instead of trying to integrate into a white supremacist world, it would be deconstructing, like... How these churches uphold white supremacy, yep. the partnerships that they have with police, the partnerships that they have with the gatekeepers, the corporations, the all the institutions that uphold racism. Yes. Yeah. And it would be inclusive beyond racial inclusivity, or even um, including women. It would include LGBT people. Yep. Yep. And it would be figuring out how we detangle the theology to really start dealing with real life, real life, not just like, Oh, I'm sad and I want to sing about being sad and God stepping in and filling the void. Like that's not, (laughs) that's not real life.
1: Well, I think, and that's the other real problem I have with this model because, and it's multi-tiered, because I feel like for the leaders, for the praise and worship leaders, I feel like what this model does, particularly, and there's a reason these praise and worship leaders are the age that they are. Because when their time is up, when this youth culture ends, mm-hmm. they have not, they don't know what else to do. Yeah. And so, you know, we have friends that are in their, you know, late 30s, 40s, 40s. Um, now, without a place because they've reached the age of disinterest for the market.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, you know, most of these kids on that level, they don't go to college because church culture becomes the center. Yeah. And so, when it all crashes, when they have a crisis of faith, when, you know, they deconstruct, when they have a fall, you know, when they realize they're gay, when they get divorced, when they, whatever the it is. They are left with nothing, mm-hmm. no way to really reinvent themselves without an extra amount of work at the age that they are when it happens. Yeah. And so that's the other problem I have with this whole disinterest in anything outside of being a worshiper, uh, because it disables them, yeah. you know, for the rest of their lives. Yeah. I mean, it's very sick to me that they really get these kids younger and younger. I just finished um, Vicky Beeching's memoir. Mm-hmm. You know, who was you know one of the big writers of the early two thousands, big artists. And thankfully, she had gone to Oxford. Thankfully, she had a degree. She maintained other interests. She actually came into it with a certain amount of um, awareness of her identity. She just was working around it, mm-hmm. but when it crashed thank god she had that degree to fall back on because she was able to write about other things and get jobs writing Mm -hmm. but otherwise she'd have been completely incomeless. yeah because this is a revenue stream and that's what i wish that people like maverick city music group were more honest about is that this is a revenue stream for them this is not you know it is not just about they just love the Lord and their are worshipers. They no, they money. decided
0: to come together to do this because they saw it as a model that yes. other people were doing, other yes. groups were doing, and making a lot of money doing.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. And there is a buy-in when you do that um, to toe a particular party line. Yeah. And that's all I read in that article. Mm -hmm. I didn't read anything exceptional, despite all they're saying, how different Different. they are. Mm -hmm. I didn't see anything any different. And I saw another post from another gospel artist this morning, and she was saying in her post, like, all of you out here with public platforms, you can't tell everything you believe, and you can't say everything you believe because it costs you relationships. And I was like, wow. So we're like also now telling people out in the world like how to be a part of this and that is just toe a party line even if you wonder even if you think it even if you and that's what i find so terrifying about this whole it's a business model and i wish they'd just be more
0: honest about that and how is that truth if we're supposed to worship in spirit and truth and you're being fundamentally dishonest But no, to go back to what you said, I mean, the, the sustainability of it. I mean, just period. And I know we're going to do another episode talking about uh, just the difficulty of being an artist mm-hmm. and how difficult things like touring are on the body. Yes. <laughs> um, and I need, we need more honesty around it is hard getting up every Sunday, leading worship for two, three services every week. And having to do that over and over again. It is on that level something that as you get older, you don't want to keep doing. No. I
1: can't imagine doing what I did in my 20s today. Yeah. Cannot imagine it. Yeah. 8 o'clock service. Yeah. Singing. 11 o'clock service. Sing. No. Yeah. No. Rehearsals all week. No.
0: And so the, the outlaw version would be figuring out how making music as a person of faith can be something that is sustainable and that everyone can actually do and enjoy doing from youth into old age yes
1: well because i think ultimately the thing that has so ruined the music is the fact that it is all now tightly controlled by a pastor Mm -hmm. a pastor who's going to dictate when it's gone too long a pastor who's going to dictate what's appropriate and what's not appropriate and so artists don't these kids don't have any concept of creative freedom
0: well no because they're all too busy trying to package what pastor said in his sermon and make it a song
1: yep which is the only reason they're actually finger quotes laboring over these lyrics is because they aren't even their thoughts they're having to figure out how to just translate it into a song Mm -hmm. something they've already heard Mm -hmm. and so yeah they don't these kids wouldn't know what to do with creative freedom if they ever fell into it, they would feel completely lost and probably incapable of creating for a while. Well, on that cheery note.
0: <laughs> just saying. <laughs> yeah, send us your thoughts. Let us know what y'all think. If you love it and want to defend it, I, you know, we probably won't care too much. But you
1: might want to just have your own podcast,
0: to be honest. Yeah, otherwise, you know, yeah, we'd love to, to hear what you think. Where can people find you, Tim?
1: Twitter and Instagram at Tim Dillinger, D-I-L-L-I-N-G-E-R,
0: and God's Music Is My Life. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Ray Carrington, R A Y C U R E N T O N. Until next time. Bye.